Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Professor Schloss, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. You have a new book out, Tyrants on Twitter. I have my copy. They can't see it, but it's sitting right here to my to my right. Um, and so it is a timely topic on a lot of... And you got your copy as well. <laughs> it's a timely topic on a lot of levels. Um, as we are recording this on December 1st, um, folks in the Twitter sphere uh, see the daily debates about newly um, found owner, CEO, president extraordinaire Elon Musk. Of course, the 2016 election got a lot of attention on Twitter, and a lot of stories are debated on Twitter. Um, it, is a, it is a social media hub for um, reporters, and so maybe people who aren't familiar with Twitter, what is the relevance, and why write a book about Twitter? Why does it control so much of the narrative, it seems? Well, I have to say the book is not really about Twitter, although I thought the title Tyrants on Twitter was a good catchy title. Uh, The book is more broadly about social media. So obviously, uh, Twitter is one of the main social media platforms in the United States. But to the extent that I'm focusing on social media, I'm not focusing just on Twitter. I'm looking at uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And obviously, TikTok is becoming uh, more important, uh, even even uh, much more important since I started writing the book. Uh, but the book is really looking at how Chinese and Russian state agents are exploiting U.S. social media platforms for the purpose of conducting information warfare. Uh, and I'm concerned about the problem of information warfare. I'm concerned about how uh, China and Russia in particular, but they're certainly not the only ones, other states too, but those are the ones I focus on, are able to take advantage of U.S. social media platforms for uh, nefarious purposes. Okay, so let's break all those down because I think from the non, uh, non-expert perspective, what I would think would be the vulnerabilities, and then you tell me where I'm right and wrong. So you take YouTube, um, the ability for a foreign state actor to influence YouTube would mainly be through pressure in comments or maybe attacking sp- uh, sponsors to not you know monetize ads. It would be harder for them to get information out on YouTube because it is a visual platform. It's quite obvious who's speaking. Um, and, to, and to kind of hide that is, it would be a little bit tougher. Same thing with Instagram, although um, you could do with Instagram. Facebook and Twitter um, would seem to be more prone to um, not knowing who's speaking, what's going on, because the, the nature of those are more written platforms. Um, and then TikTok, I, it's, I'm not a big TikTok guy, so I've been on there a few times. I'm not sure. I know the threat from a data security standpoint is there, but from an actual content um, publishing standpoint, I'm I'm not sure if that's as easy as a as a as a way to, to to trick people. So when you break down these platforms, how do you think of them? Is there an, is there a common thread that you see amongst all of them? Where the threat's the same? Is the threat different? Uh, how do you unpack that? 
Well, let me uh, answer that by talking a little more specifically about sort of Russian interference in the 2016 election in the United States. Uh, Russia's, uh, you know, uh, Robert Mueller uh, was appointed as special counsel to investigate, did a detailed investigation, and he concluded that Russia's interference was sweeping and systematic. And probably their most potent weapon was uh, a variety of different uh, fake accounts. Uh, in the book, I sort of break down different types of fake accounts, but essentially without, without going into sort of too much nuance there, uh, they were very able to create these accounts in which they pretended, different Russian agents pretended to be uh, Americans, took on different kinds of identities and used those identities to sort of influence political conversation. So you have one group of accounts in which they're pretending to be African-Americans and they're really trying to engage the African-American community. Different set of accounts where they're pretending to be, you know, uh, you know, MAGA Republicans, Trump Republicans, and they're trying to influence that conversation, right? And I, some where they're gun lovers and they're trying to influence that conversation. And they're doing this across platforms. So they made use, now TikTok in 2016 wasn't a big deal, but they were making extensive use of YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and actually linking back and forth across those platforms in their uh, in their campaign, and it's pretty easy to set up these fake accounts on any of those platforms, right? Where they can uh, essentially adopt the identity of somebody else, try and come across as an American, you know, American citizen, and engage with different parts of the American population, uh, and. They did that very effectively, and they gained huge numbers of followers across all those platforms. Okay, so let's unpack one of the questions I've had when I'm thinking about this term interference in the election. Um, is it, we, I think, or, or do you agree, rather, that state actors trying to interfere in the U.S. election is not a new concept? Um, the argument here might be, the, the manner in which they're doing it is different this time, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I, um, in the book, I present a little Venn diagram that uh, sort of shows the overlap between what I call uh, foreign influence operations and organized social media manipulation. So foreign influence operations, as you point out, have been going on for you know decades, if not centuries, right? Uh, this has been a part of the sort of foreign policy toolkit of great powers for a long time. Organized social media manipulation, uh, which is a term I borrow from a scholar named uh, Philip Howard, who, <clears throat> excuse me, used to run the Oxford Internet Institute, um, is obviously a much newer phenomenon. It comes with the rise of social media. But the intersection between those two, where essentially people are using social media to conduct foreign influence operations, is what I call information warfare. <clears throat> and that is a relatively new phenomenon, and it does give uh, agents of foreign states uh, greater power than they had before to conduct really effective sort of covert operations where they're trying to influence domestic politics in foreign countries. Yeah, and I think it's important to unpack that because part of the problem around 
um, the 2016 election, um, and the narrative was, it, it seemed to be that some of the reporting acted as if this was a new phenomenon instead of trying to talk about the historic patterns that we saw and what might be different and unique about this. And so you kind of conflated this thing. Well, oh my gosh, the Russians are interfering. And well, if you've, you know, if you studied history, like, yeah, the Russians interfere, U.S. interferes, China interferes, like, like the interference is, is a regular part of this process. The question is, 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 is when we talk about the interference, and this is, this is part of this kind of question that I've had at large, when you talk about interfering with an election, to me, when, if you said, well, you interfered, um, I would take that at face value um, to mean that you, you changed a vote, you broke a voting machine, you stopped someone from voting. Um, you maybe paid someone to vote differently, like an actual bribe. There's probably some other options. That would seem to be the word interfered, some, something that you've stopped the natural course. Um, propaganda. I'm not sure how we view or how should we view propaganda as it pertains to interference because you could quite argue well, the biggest promoters of propaganda is our own government and how they say things and how they spend things. The whole election is, from from my standpoint at least, a lot of lies being told by both parties. And that's pure propaganda. And that interferes with the election. So should we use the term interference? Because to me, I'm, I'm a little concerned that that's almost too broad of a term. I mean, it's a, that should be more of a narrow term to, to, to point to deliberate uh, intentionality on a level that's that can be measured versus more of a wide scale propaganda campaign. Uh, I do think the term interference is appropriate. Um, you know, uh, but let me, let me make a couple of different points here. Right. One is that it's really important to note that the situation between U S Russia and China is asymmetrical, right? Um, China and Russia do not carry out free and fair elections. We carry out elections that, at least on the surface, appear to be free and fair. Uh, there are, you know, uh, debates about that. But, but certainly relative to China, we have a much freer and fairer electoral system than either China or Russia. Uh, and the second point is we also have a much more open information system. Even, you know, even if they were conducting, like, you know, elections in China, the democratic elections in China, we don't have the ability to, inf- to intervene in their information ecosystem the way they can do to us because they have a basically closed information ecosystem and we have an open information ecosystem, right? So whether you to use the term interference or intervention or, you know, different term like that, there's a fundamental asymmetry here that we cannot do to them what they're doing to us, right? Uh, because, uh, because of the difference between open and closed information ecosystems and because of differences in sort of how elections are or aren't conducted, right? So that's the, that's the first point. Uh, the second point is that in a democracy, uh, it's important that it is the, uh, you know, the people who are members of that democratic polity to be the ones who are, controlling the electoral outcome. So certainly you're right that both political parties are engaged in what I think can fairly be called manipulation, right? Both political parties want to manipulate information and manipulate the electorate to get the electoral outcomes they want. And that's part of the democratic process, right? 
But there's a difference between insiders doing that and outsiders doing that, because insiders are part of the democratic polity and outsiders are not, right? So I think that's not to say we shouldn't be concerned about, um, you know, insiders spreading false information. I think insiders spreading false information is a problem. But it's a different, and you know, it's a different kind of problem than when outsiders are doing it. Just because the the these basic ideas of democratic governance draw lines between insiders who are part of the democratic polity and outsiders who are not, right? So, and that's why I think the term interference or intervention is appropriate because it's really outsiders sort of messing with something they're they're not a part of, right? Now, well, I mean, one, one more point, if I may, right? There's a separate question then about how effective they are, right? Did they really, I mean, one response to this is, look, we shouldn't worry about this if they're not affecting outcomes, right? Um, and in the book, I rely in part on uh, a book by a scholar uh, at University of Pennsylvania named Kathleen Hall Jameson. She wrote a, wrote a book called Cyber War. She is uh, one of the leading experts in the country on political communication. And she makes a pretty compelling argument that Russian interference in the 2016 election may have actually swung the vote in favor of Donald Trump. Now, there's no way of knowing for sure, right? And she's careful to say we don't know for sure. But she marshals a lot of evidence to suggest that there's at least a plausible story here that they did swing the outcome, right? And that, I think should be of great concern, whether you're, you know, pro-Trump or pro-Clinton or wherever you are on the political spectrum, you know, we don't want outsiders sort of intervening in a way that actually changes electoral outcomes. Right. And I think that's part of the, the, the part of the crux is, um, I didn't vote for Trump or Clinton or Trump or Biden. So for your perspective and the audience, I didn't vote for any of them. Um, um, with that being said, um, the, the election for Trump for me was quite stunning. I didn't think he was going to win. I thought he's going to get, he's going to get crushed. And, and so it's, the, there are questions and, and, and this is be a question we're getting to is how sure are we that we're not being caught off guard by a surprise election? And then we're superimposing things that might've been going on in 2012 um, on, on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, but because the election was by all measures, a surprise election, um, we start to look for other reasons why and go, well, perhaps it was these Twitter bots or these Facebook bots. Um, and so are we measuring the activity on tw- uh, on the midterms of 2014, uh, the 2012 presidential election? Are we measuring those things to see how much disinformation from these foreign bots were out there and, and what impact we think it might have had on those elections? Because um, since the 2016 election, there's been a lot of talk about this. Um, but the Republicans have not fared that well in the elections since then. Um, so it could be this, interfer- this, this interference issue. It could just be a weird election that has turned out against the pundits, and they're trying to figure out ways that it didn't fit the narrative that they thought was going to happen. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, I understand the question. Um, so uh, obviously our knowledge is imperfect, Right. We go back. I mean, the by by all accounts, the first election that was really heavily influenced by social media, first U.S. presidential election was heavily influenced by social media, was the 2008 presidential election, where a lot of commentators said, "Look, one of the reasons Obama won was he made much more effective use of social media uh, than the Republicans did there." Right. Uh, 
So I've done a lot of research into, you know, both Russian and Chinese activity. Based on what we know, Russia really started seriously using social media to sort of intervene in foreign uh, politics in about 2014. There was a significant ramp up in Russian activity starting in 2014. And one of the things I point out in the book is that since 2014, we've got evidence of Russia, uh, you know, trying to interfere in elections in, a, in about 20 to 24 different countries that are members of either NATO or the European Union or both, right? So one of Putin's key foreign policy goals for a while has been to weaken NATO, weaken the European Union. And there's lots of evidence of Russian activity along those lines in European elections, but really only starting about 2014. We don't have much before that, right? So that's one reason to think that they probably weren't at least engaged in a, in a large-scale effort to influence stuff in 2012. But can I say for sure they weren't? No, I can't, right? Uh, and China has really gotten into the game later than Russia. Uh, so with China, we really don't start seeing much of this activity. I mean, China has been for a long time controlling domestically activity on social media. They've been doing that for quite a while, right? And they have been... Um, also engaged, you know, if you can call sort of what China's doing in Taiwan foreign interference, right? People would disagree about whether, you know, whether that counts. They've, they've been meddling in Taiwan for a long time. They've been trying to control stuff on social media domestically for a long time. But outside of China and Taiwan, we don't really start seeing much in the way of sort of widespread Chinese activity until uh, maybe... 2016, 2018, there's stuff going on in Australia and then some other countries, uh, you know, beyond that. Okay. I want to focus on China in just a second. I want to separate them now, though, for the discussion, because I I do think uh, viewing China and Russia, we we need to talk about them separately. I mean, they they might collectively be doing um, similar actions, but I think there's some practicalities that, that make them a little bit different. So on Russia, you mentioned their um, their goal is to weaken NATO. And um, I think that's a that's a plausible explanation for what they're doing. When, when we go through this and we say, okay, hey, the Russians had X amount of bot accounts. They did this. They did they, they you know they put out this amount of information during these elections. The, the, one of the problems I have is is trying to attribute that we understand beyond maybe a general weakening of weakening of resolve why they might want a particular candidate in place. Uh, and to me, there's a little bit of danger saying, well. If the Russians tried to get in Clinton or Trump or Biden or Trump, insert name here, then we know that that's their candidate. Um, to me, it's very a, a very flat line way of thinking because um, it would seem more relevant that 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 they're, that, they're, that they're more trying to weaken the resolve. That that would be more of what they're going to do. There'd be more effective ways theoretically of getting their candidate. Should we try to attribute with the Russians specifically? Um, why they might want a specific candidate? Can we trust that we know that information, or should we stop at the at the base level saying, listen, they're trying to influence the, elect the elections. Why is a different question. Right. So uh, here I would refer to the report by Robert Mueller, which really looked in depth at this stuff. And Mueller uh, says that 
in the early phases of Russian intervention, they weren't really trying, and this is back to 2016, they weren't really trying to support one candidate over another. They were more interested in sort of creating, contributing to political polarization in the United States on the theory that the more polarized we are, the less effective we're going to be at sort of uh, standing up to uh, Russia on various kinds of foreign policy disputes, right? So there's clearly an element of the strategy there that they think more polarization in the U.S. is good for them because it weakens the United States. But Mueller concluded that at a certain point in the process, they, they decided definitively that a Trump presidency was better for them than a Clinton presidency. And after that point, what's interesting is if you look at the sort of narratives that the Russians are peddling, they're very much aligned with the narratives of the Trump campaign to the point where it's a little hard in some cases to say who's actually behind this message, right? Is this is this a Trump operative behind the message or is it uh, the Russians behind the message? And in fact, one of the more uh, sort of alarming incidents that Mueller describes in his report is that uh, the Russians actually started organizing pro-Trump rallies on the ground in certain states in the United States. And they were putting stuff out there going out to sort of Trump supporters where the Trump supporters think it's the Trump campaign is doing this, but actually it's the Russians who are doing it. And they effectively mobilize people to come out for demonstrations and stuff like this or rallies in support of Trump. So it's very clear after a certain point that they're really throwing their weight behind the Trump campaign. Now, you know, I don't know, I could give a detailed explanation of why beyond the point that they concluded at a certain point that a Trump presidency was going to be better for them than a Clinton presidency, right? And that's why they were doing what they were doing. But I think that much is pretty clear, although I think you're right, that's not how they started out. That was not really, you know, they were sort of a, that was not the focus of their initial intervention. Okay, so that's helpful. Now let's talk about China. So. We talk about China on the show quite regularly, um, and for me, um, it is a very, very tough topic to to kind of unpack. And this one is really unique because you have, um, you know, TikTok, which we can talk about. Um, you can have the bot accounts, um, but before social media, China has been, I think, far better at playing this game than the Russians ever were, because the Russians have been perceived an enemy of the U.S. for some time. Okay, you know, we have, I mean, there's whole era of 1970s and 80s movies about, you know, the Russians attacking and us attacking them. Like there's, there's books and books and books about it. Um, and, and then we went from that to kind of the Middle Eastern countries is, is who we're attacking in the, in the novels and the books. There are some Chinese books and movies, but in popular culture, for a, for a large part, the Russians have been viewed negatively. China has kind of had mixed reviews until the last few years, which really got negative. But what we've learned as these layers have come undone is that there are maps that exclude Taiwan. There are companies who will not say that they fly to Taiwan on their website. And that's, right. that's not social media. That is Chinese pressure on private entities in the U.S. preventing them from openly talking about things. Movies have removed things from their posters. There's a litany of things we go on and on and on about how China has influenced American culture without the help of social media ever. Um, so to me, they are, or were at least, a few steps ahead of the Russians. Would you agree with that sentiment that, that, that they that they've been better at this? Maybe just because of how they've been viewed publicly, but they've been better at this before 
even social media was was much of a factor. Right. So you say better at this. I think we have to sort of break out. What do we mean by this? Right. I'll break it out uh, for you. (laughs) Better at the better at the propaganda game of of not allowing the true narrative to be put out there. They are better at putting pressure on organizations, companies, et cetera, on not talking about what China doesn't want discussed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So so China, um, uh, China has certainly has levers that they can use that Russia doesn't. The primary one being that, you know, we are economically very integrated with China. Uh, in a way that we've never been with Russia. China is important to the global economy. Uh, Russia, you know, Russia is important to the energy economy in Europe, right? As we've sort of found out in the, in the you know, wake of the Ukraine war, right? But China is a bigger player in the global economy and China is able to use that, those economic links to get leverage over, you know, both states and large private actors, right? In a way that Russia... Uh, Russia cannot, right? Uh, so, uh, and China is, um, uh, I'd say, very strategic in how it uses that economic leverage to pursue uh, political goals, right? So, uh, generally, yeah, I think you're you're right about that. Now, what China? Well, I want to go back to. Um, there was a very significant decision by uh, Hu Jintao, who was then the you know head of the Chinese Communist Party, in 2009, that China wanted to expand its global media presence, and he made a decision to invest the equivalent of about nine or ten billion dollars in doing that. That's a lot of money, right? Uh, and since then, there are China has about. Uh, six or seven major state media companies that are operating all over the world and that have developed a major presence all over the world in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. Uh, And they, uh, in large parts of the world, uh, you can think about this as sort of during during the Cold War, right? The United States efforts to sort of shape perceptions around the world were largely driven through Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, right? Well, what China is doing is sort of Voice of America on steroids. What they're what they've invested in this effort is roughly ten times as much as what the U.S. is putting into this effort currently. It's a little hard to get good numbers, right? But that's a rough approximation. And they're reaching a huge global audience. So by far the biggest global television network in the world today is CGTN, China Global Television Network, which is operating in like 160 countries around the world, supposedly reaching a global audience of more than a billion people. Although, again, I I wonder, is that Chinese propaganda, right, that they want us to believe that? Or is that a real number? I don't know. But that's what they that's what they claim, right? Whereas CNN on a global basis is reaching something like 350 million people, right? Um, so, uh, and that, and then China has similar things in radio and, you know, that sort of stuff, right? So none of that is really social media, at least up front, right? This is just traditional media, radio, television, etc. 
but they are putting out uh, Chinese propaganda all over the world through these, uh, you know, through these efforts. And they're doing it very effectively. And there are large parts of the world where people have a very favorable view of China. Uh, and I think in part because they're getting a lot of their news from sources that are Chinese sources, either directly or indirectly, right? So Russia is not doing anything comparable to that, right? Uh, and that, and so this is a big difference between Russia, Russia and China, right? And that's a uh, different kind of thing. But let me, I mean, I could go on, but let me just sort of stop there because I don't want to just keep talking. Here. No, no, no. That's why I want to separate them out because I think that um, wherever you come in on what U.S.-China relationships should be uh, or U.S.-Russia relationships, um, sometimes we, we tend to lump them together and, and I think there's a time and place for that, but also, you know, it, it's quite apparent that, um, what I would call the, 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 elites for lack of a better term, their, their willingness, public companies, um, to, to criticize China is, is far less than they will criticize Russia. And you can see this with the NBA. You can see this with Disney. You can see this with all the major movie companies, you know, their, their willingness to criticize the Chinese is they're very reluctant. Um, in, in part because the Chinese um, make up a huge portion of their, their business. They might have factories there. Um, you know, Disney has a park that's majority owned by the Chinese. Um, and so they're, when we talk about the, their influence on social media, it's there and there's no doubt about it. And they're putting probably more dollars. Um, they have these large broadcast networks. I've actually been published in Xinhua, the paper. So <laughs> I think they, 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 um, argue the world's largest publication. So I give my journalist friends a hard time. Like, yeah, I've been published in front of more people than you. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds good. Um, but their ability is not just to influence social media through bots and fake accounts. They also have the backing or at least the ability to tamper down criticism from a lot, a lot of large players. And so it's kind of a two prong attack here. So that, that to me, where you talk about the influence, you know, the Russians aren't going to get a lot of favorable news treatment, <laughs> but the NBA might come out and crush Russia, but they're going to be very, very slow to say anything remotely about China, regardless of what they're saying in the U.S. And so to me, that's where you have to just be careful saying, um, and not, not, not accusing you, just, just saying that in general, you have to be kind of careful saying, well, Russia and China are interfering. Well, the interference from the Chinese seems to be at scales that are, that are far greater than the Russians can do. Um, and the other thing is, when, when you talk about this, the rules, we had David Firestein on just the other day, and he was talking about how China views the rules of engagement um, and, and as far as stealing technology, corporate theft, stuff like that. And they just they, they disagree on where these lines are being drawn. Um, they, they say that the U.S. is drawing an arbitrary line because we're stealing. They're just stealing a little bit further over, and for them, that's okay. Um, do they pose a greater threat than the Russians, in your opinion? Well, I think there's no question that China poses a greater long-term threat than Russia does. I think China is a more formidable adversary in the long term, right? We have, uh, obviously, we're, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a whole different thing. And that's a, that's a serious problem, like right now. But I do think China poses a bigger long-term threat. So let me sort of say, make three different points in response to what you just said, Right. One is there's a quote I use in the book that I really like that comes from a guy who worked in the Trump White House. And he says, um, Russia is a hurricane and China is climate change. And I think that's a nice sort of summary of the differences here, right? Uh, Russia, Russia, insofar as they're using social media, they're sort of primarily 
negative and destructive. They want to undermine NATO. They want to undermine the European Union. China has a much more positive long-term vision of sort of remaking the international order uh, in a way that is, you know, consistent or let's, let's say sort of friendly to authoritarian regimes, right? Uh, and uh, and they're, they at least until recently have been pretty patient and taken a sort of a, we'll play the long game and the slow game, right? So that's the China's climate change, right? Um, so th- there's definitely a big difference between the two of them in that respect. Uh, I, I want to come back to the China on social media in particular. Uh, I have a chart in the book, uh, and I can just sort of summarize it for you here, but it looks, it compares... Chinese state media companies with U.S. media companies and the number of likes they have on Facebook, right? And basically, uh, this chart lists uh, five different Chinese state media companies that have uh, at least 50 million, and in one case, over 100 million likes on Facebook. In comparison, the top U.S. media company is CNN, has only 33 million. Fox Fox News is down below 20 million, right? And this is really significant because you got to remember Facebook is essentially banned in China. So this is a metric of how many people outside of China, these companies, these big media companies are reaching on Facebook. And it's much bigger numbers than their U.S. counterparts. Now, if you look at Twitter, the numbers come out differently. U.S. media companies have a bigger presence on Twitter. Chinese companies have a smaller presence on Twitter, right? But, uh, but this is a way in which we are essentially helping them get their propaganda to a global audience by sort of letting them set up these free accounts on Facebook and they're amassing large numbers of followers on Facebook. The other point I wanted to make about China and social media, and this is one of the more disturbing things I came across in doing research for the book. So uh, are you familiar with WeChat? Oh, yeah. I've been to China. I have it on my phone. Uh, Okay. So WeChat has um, uh, uh, now I'm blanking on the number exactly, but but, um, very large number of followers outside of China. WeChat, for people listening to this who may not be familiar with it, I like to think of WeChat as sort of Facebook and Amazon rolled into one. Uh, Domestically within China, it functions both as a social media platform and a shopping platform, right? But there, there are lots and lots of WeChat users outside of China, most of whom are ethnic Chinese who want to be able to use WeChat to communicate with friends and family back in China. So what started to happen is that in Western liberal democracies that have large ethnic Chinese communities, politicians are using WeChat to communicate with their constituents. So if I'm a congressman representing a district in California that has a big ethnic Chinese community, I'm going to set up a WeChat account because it's a good way to communicate with my constituents. And this is happening in the U.S. and Australia and Canada and the United Kingdom. Uh, What research has documented is China exercises near total control over that platform. 
And China is basically able to use its control over that platform to essentially censor communications between Western politicians and their constituents. So if, you know, somebody in that communication is saying something critical of China, China can shut it down, right? And they can essentially control that communication. So this is, I think, pretty nefarious stuff where China is able to use its control over that platform to essentially conduct surveillance on communications between Western politicians and their constituents and to censor those communications to some extent. So that's just one example of China using social media in a way that uh, I find uh, quite troubling. Yeah, we had on Josh Chen for the Wall Street Journal on his new book, uh, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. We'll link to that in the show notes for people who want to go hear that interview as well. Um, because you're, you're right, it is, it is um, I don't think people fully understand you know, what, what, what they're doing, what, what's going on um, with that. But I'm going to go back to the Facebook thing because you made an interesting point there about the number of likes. So the, there's a couple of things, at, if I was just speculating uh, as a non-expert non here, just a bloviator, <laughs> I would say, okay, the first thing is Fox, this is, it was taken from least to most. Fox News, um, I don't watch Fox or CNN with any regularity. So if I, if I were to turn on tonight, I expect on Fox News, it's going to be pretty much only U.S. politics. Maybe Russia, Ukraine, if something significant happens, but it's going to be pretty heavy, heavy, heavy U.S. Uh, news. CNN is going to be maybe one or two notches off of that, but pretty heavy U.S. But CNN has a larger international correspondence network that they do cover um, more news. So you might have a little bit more international flavor. The China news, I suspect, is probably very little China news and far, 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 uh, far more like a global BBC network. And so they're going to get a lot more global news. So on some level, I suspect that China is putting out a new news that's relevant to a more global audience at, 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 at this first, first guess. The second thing I would say is how, how often is Facebook suppressing and censoring Chinese news versus Fox news? Because we do know that has happened. And so there's a question of is Facebook, you said they're allowing them to have these effect accounts, but also are they hurting American interests by suppressing American news networks? Um, well, certainly, uh, Facebook at least purports to have, um, you know, these community standards that apply neutrally to whoever's on the platform, right? So, you know, they're going after like, you know, hate speech, they're going after misinformation. Um, uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't know the, what, to what extent, Facebook and applying those those policies that that purport to be sort of neutral end up uh, impacting like one network more than another network. I, I don't know. If I had to guess, I would guess that uh, that they're uh, they're uh, uh, taking stuff off of Fox News for misinformation more than they are for other networks. But I don't know. Right. Let me just pause. Let me just pause you there because I think this is an important point to, to dwell on for just a second here. Um, Facebook did suppress the, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which even now mainstream media is is acknowledging. There's some there there to it. Um, 
if you took that story and you said, well, whatever you want to think about the, the relevance of the Hunter Biden laptop story, um, the New York Post published it. Uh, it was during election. Um, okay, so there, there's a story in isolation that Facebook has openly admitted they suppressed. They worked with the FBI, came to them, uh, notified them of a potential story. So there's a sense in which they they they, they squashed. I don't know if Fox News ran that story or not. I know the New York Post published it. So whoever was running that story though got right. suppressed. So so we right. so even if you said, well, it's a hundred percent a hoax. That story is a hundred percent a hoax. That's your stance. If you said that, whatever you say about the Chinese news daily. If you read their stuff, they're putting out 100% hoaxes. And so there is no argument from my standpoint that Facebook can make when they're being equitable because by definition, the Chinese media is putting out propaganda over and over and over again. So if you said, well, Hunter Biden's 100% fake, okay, cool. It, that's, that's fine. You can take that stance. But the Chinese put out 100% fake stories all the time. And so they cannot, by definition, if they're allowing them to publish um, and they're not suppressing their stories with some vigor, be 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 holding both companies to the same standard right so um again i don't i mean i i don't i guess i i would take issue with you in a couple of points i mean i don't think that everything china is putting out is like 100 percent hoax no 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 not, 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 not everything i'm saying that, that they are regularly putting out stories that are yeah so i think some of the i mean some of you know that china was putting out stories about um you know conspiracy theories about the uh, the you know COVID really originated in this lab in the United States. I think that got suppressed because it was bogus, and everybody knew it was bogus, uh, and so it didn't get a lot of circulation, right? Um, but China, you know, and here here I uh, I think we agree. China is very skillful at putting out propaganda that is not you know really false, but it's you know. It's sort of uh, either casting China in a positive light or casting who they perceive to be their, you know, adversaries or enemies in a negative light. Right. And but but as I understand Facebook policies, if it's not false, they let it go. Right. So it may well be that um, that China is doing a good job of sort of, you know, uh, taking advantage of the way the policies are framed to be able to get stories out there that that are politically advantageous for them, but they don't don't get taken down because they're not like identified as false, right? It's it's probably also true though, and this goes back to something else you said, right? Um, uh, you know, F Fox News has very much a U.S. focus. Um, I think. Facebook probably does a much better job of identifying what's false in a U.S. context than they do in a global context, right? We know that Facebook puts much, Facebook puts very little effort into content moderation in Africa and Asia, right? They don't have nearly as many people. Chinese are trying to reach a ton of people in Africa and Asia, right? Uh, and Facebook just doesn't have, have a whole lot of people monitoring that stuff because they don't care about it as much as they do about what's going on in the U.S., right? So they're jumping on that Hunter Biden laptop story because it's U.S., and there's at least some sources out there saying that this looks like a Russian disinformation effort, right? I don't know whether it is or not, but they're sort of, you know, that's what some people are saying, right? So, so it, may, it may end up that it may well be that, that Facebook's policies 
are disproportionately affecting, you know, uh, Fox News because Fox News is very U.S. focused. Facebook is very U.S. focused. And Facebook just isn't putting the effort into going after stuff that China is spreading all over like Asia and Africa that Facebook just doesn't care about that. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think I think so I'm looking right now, the Global Times has 72 million followers on Facebook. And we right, would agree. Right, right. What would you, how would you characterize the Global Times? What kind of paper would you call it to be? Oh, I mean, this is a Chinese state media company, right? It's controlled by it's controlled ultimately by the Chinese Communist Party. And its mission is to spread propaganda for the Chinese Communist Party, you know. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's what they are. <laughs> we, we, we both agree. I'm just, I'm, so I'm saying when we say that they're trying to apply these standards equitably, I, do, I just, it's, it, it falls a little short when I hear that. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. Well, I, I understand, I understand what you're, you're repeating. Clear, what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not saying that to defend Facebook. No, 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 I know, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being critical of you. That's what they say, right? No, 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 yes, I'm not trying to attack you. I know, I know when they say that to me, that's like, mm, okay. Well, let's actually unpack what that would take, the amount of effort. And this is when you have these discussions and you, we, we use these terms, to me, this is the danger is, is Facebook says, well, we are applying the standards with equity across the board. It's like, well, to your point, how many people at Facebook understand the lay of the land in Cameroon and what's going on there between the southern Cameroons and northern Cameroons and the, and the, and the wars going on there? And, and how many? Probably not many. Maybe yep. a few. Yep. Who's going to decipher that information? I certainly don't want to be the person to do it. Uh, but who its Facebook is, and so I think I think the social media companies probably need to. And, and there's pressure from government, which we haven't really touched on. We probably should. There's pressure from government to say that you have to monitor these sites, and it's like, well, by what standard, government? Like, how is Facebook to monitor these things? I'm not saying that Facebook shouldn't. I'm saying that. I feel like when I hear the the politicians or the social media company talk about what they're doing, when you really start to peel it back, you find out that they're disproportionately, potentially at least, impacting certain groups and not others. They're not being equitable in the rules because it's it's just a it's a task that's probably too large for any group to do. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think I think it is really really hard to sort of perform content moderation effectively on a platform that's got a billion users, you know, uh, it's, it's a hard task. And I worry a lot about the impact in uh, the global South generally, because I think Facebook is just not putting resources or sufficient resources into doing that. So, you know, just one example, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that Facebook was deeply implicated in uh, basically inciting genocide in Myanmar a few, a few years ago against the Rohingya because they didn't have anybody who actually spoke the local language who could pay attention to what was going on there. So anybody who wanted to get on there and start, you know, spewing sort of, you know, uh, racial ethnic, you know, epithets and encouraging people to go out and kill these people, they could do that and it wasn't getting picked up on by anybody in Facebook. And there were actually people on the ground that trying to warn Facebook, say, hey, this is happening. You got to do something about this. And they couldn't get the attention of anybody in in uh, Facebook. There, right. So I do think that that uh, there's a real problem with monitoring what's going on in, you know, countries basically outside of the United States and Western Europe. Right. Uh, and that's where um uh, you know, if you that's where China is developing a huge media presence 
and is able to use both its sort of media presence as well as economic leverage to, you know, basically line up a whole bunch of countries and, you know, who are willing to support China's vision of what the international order ought to look like rather than the U.S. vision. And that's where I think we do have a significant long-term, you know, threat that we're not dealing with effectively. Okay. So Noam Chomsky came on a month or two ago, and he argued a couple things. One, that he doesn't think that Chinese aggression, not on social media, but uh, from a military standpoint, is really much of a threat. He argues that that's mainly U.S. and British propaganda. He second thing he pointed out was um, that if you read the NATO documents, um, you know the people who have aggressed towards Russia is NATO by their expansion, um, and not that he's ju- he was he's not justifying Putin's actions, but simply saying that Putin is responding to the things that he's seeing and has to protect his ground. Um, and he pointed out in that that so you have the U.S. propaganda and British propaganda, according to Richard Chomsky, in China and in the Russia. What he pointed out was he goes there are thousands of articles that constantly refer to this um, as a unprovoked war, uh, I think was the term he used. And he said, well, of course it was provoked. It was provoked by how NATO uh, acted towards Russia. And again, he's not justifying the action. He's just saying from Russia's perspective, um, if you were to take Chomsky's point and say, okay, I can, I can see where he's coming from at least. That would, part of what he's getting at there is that the U S political and, and the British political government's, uh, messaging has influenced public sentiment and the media large part has gone along with them. Um, how are we to say, well, who can be responsible for moderating any of this? Because if Chomsky, if Chomsky's right, then the West largely misbelieves what's happening in China and Russia because of what we're being told by our uh, mainstream media, by our uh, top politicians. Um, we're being misled by them. So who in that case is the person to come on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and say this is the proper messaging that should be allowed and this is the messaging that should be allowed? And you can disagree with Chomsky's assessment, but there are, pl- there are other examples we could point to, I'm sure, that we'd say, okay, the government was definitely wrong here. The war in Iraq would be one. Um, and so that would be a, a way of saying, well, they are the ones giving the wrong information. So who in the case, we understand with the foreign languages, it can be tough, but in the context of the U.S., how should we think about moderation, um, who's in charge of it, oversight, stuff like that. All right. Well, let me just first say, I, I really uh, disagree strongly with Chomsky about the Russia-Ukraine thing. I think, I, think Russia's, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked aggression. But leaving leaving that aside, I think the broader point you're getting at is, you know, it's really hard to sort of come up with a reliable system. Who do you trust to determine what's true and what's false, right? Uh, And uh, I personally don't trust the uh, social media companies all that much to make those judgments, right? But do you want, you know, know, the, the sort of scare tactic alternative that people raise is, well, do you want a government ministry of truth making these decisions? Well, clearly we don't want that, right? Uh, So I personally have been supporting... Uh, I think we need to put a lot more resources into independent fact checkers, uh, you know, non-government entities. And we've got some of these, right? Like factcheck.org is one example. There are a few of them. But if you look at actually the amount of money and the amount of staffing for these 
uh, independent fact-checking organizations. It's very small. Uh, there's not these are not big organizations. They do not have big budgets, and we've got this sort of flood of information out there that right now. Honestly, we are dependent upon the social media companies to make these calls because there's nobody else out there who has the capacity to sort of second guess them on stuff, right? So I, you know, if I were, you know, if I could sort of wave a magic wand and say this is what, you know, this way we should do it, I would put a lot more money into independent fact checkers and, you know, give them greater staff and give them greater you know, prominence in sort of, uh, you know, uh, checking up on this stuff, because I think, the, you know, the the social media companies, let's face it, they are driven by a profit motive. And um, and that uh, makes them, in my view, not entirely reliable in terms of sort of making decisions about what stuff should get suppressed because it's false and what stuff should get out there because it's true, you know, and, um, you know, and I, and I also, I guess the last point I'll say about that is there's a lot of empirical social science research suggesting that we as individuals are not terribly good at making those judgments, right? Uh, if if um, I get bombarded with a bunch of false information and, you know, that's all I'm seeing, at some point I'm going to believe that, right? That's, uh, that, that's the way people operate. So, uh, so I don't think there are sort of any perfect solutions here, but I think when you look at different possible solutions, more into independent fact checkers would at least help you. Yeah, and I think one of the, the downfalls of social media, um, I think I mentioned the Cameroon stuff. I think if you want to go find out about what's going on in southern Cameroon, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a travesty of what's going on there. Um, and mm. so it, you can find that out on Twitter. Um, whereas yeah. before, you wouldn't have got that on Fox News and probably not CNN either. It's not a big enough story. So you, there, there's the beauty of being able to expose um, corrupt leaders and, 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 and tyrannical actions. Um, the downfall is, to your point, you get bombarded, um, but it also negates agreeing on the margin, right? And so I'm not saying that everything in life should be compromised, but just like we had to unpack interference, okay? I'm not yeah. sure I would go with your definition, if that's my definition, but I'm also happy to use your definition now that we've used it in context and, and talk about it over a longer form period. Whereas on Twitter, it doesn't allow for like, okay, unpack your definition. What do you mean? How does it work? And so right. it, it really, uh, it, the, where we can find at least commonality, define terms, understand and try to give a genuine concern of what the other person's saying, it negates that, it seems. And it gives the appearance, though, that it does do that. And so it's kind of a, a reverse, like, oh, we're actually having a conversation. And you go read people going back and forth, and they're, they're really not. They're just kind of <laughs> they're just kind of going back and forth. And so um, I think that's a frustration that I've had. I've been um, reading some um, books about critical race theory recently. And so I've been talking to some friends about it, like, hey, they'll say this, they'll say this. And, and I've, I've noticed that people sometimes will go whole hog agreeance, and some will go whole hog disagreeance without listening to what the actual argument's being presented there. And it's like, I'm not saying I agree with all this stuff. I'm not saying I disagree with all this stuff. I'm saying this specific thing is being said right here. If you took yeah. this out and put it in this politician's mouth, you would agree with it. That's all I'm saying. And it's yeah. funny that you can't accept this snippet. And so I think that's part of, I don't know how we fix that if we can on social media, but the realization that it's hard to accomplish that um, might be something that people should take under advisement. That'd be my advice. I don't know. You're the expert here. What would you say to people having conversations, understanding that you have 
foreign actors trying to influence you. You have people with their own agendas trying to influence you. You have people like me who aren't very smart on there. You have a whole spectrum of people on these conversations. How would you advise people to perceive, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you that, uh, that social media in general, as a medium of communication, tends to, uh, you know, favor sort of shouting matches rather than uh, intelligent dialogue, right? I think that's a problem. Now, there's a lot that social media is useful for, you know? I mean, you, you, you know, being on Twitter, I like learn stuff on Twitter that I wouldn't learn from somewhere else, right? So, uh, so partly we all need to be sort of intelligent consumers of what we're, what we're seeing on social media. Uh, but I also, I, I worry that, and now th- this is, look, I'm 65 years old. I've been around for a while. You know, I lived most of my life without social media, right? But I do worry, and I'm a, I'm a professor, so I'm teaching students who are, you know, mostly in their 20s, right? I worry that that generation is sort of replacing face-to-face communication with social media communication. And I think that's a bad thing, right? And one of the things that I've actually been talking recently about with students here at the law school where I teach is how can we set up for where we get people with very divergent political views coming together and having a calm, intelligent, rational conversation about stuff? Uh, because I think that's really important that, and, and I worry that that's sort of a lost art, right? So definitely... Social media is not good for that. And we need to find other vehicles for communication where we can get people. Because I think if you do that, what you find out is one group over here says, you know, I'm conservative. And another group over here says we're liberal. They get together and they talk about stuff and they find there's actually a lot that they can agree on, you know. But but they're not going to find that by sending tweets, you know, uh, sending tweets over Twitter, right? They're going to find that by actually sitting down face to face and talking to each other in, you know, uh, in, a, in an environment that that encourages more uh, sort of considered dialogue. Right? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's European and so a self-identified socialist. Not, I'm not calling one. I'm not calling him something he wouldn't go by. So he's a self-identified right, right. socialist. And, right. and I was reading his bemoanings of capitalism. And it was quite funny because it, it wasn't actually um, – I agreed with the problems in, in the sense of, you know, we need how to, how to get the poor – raise the middle class, better, better uh, jobs for the poor. I, I agree with all that. It was really just a system of solutions that we were actually kind of going back and forth on, not, not this is a problem or this isn't a problem. If, you know, yeah, there, there are people that are extremely poor. How do we fix that? That's, and so – um, and so we're kind of just go back and forth and on a private message there, but just thinking about that. And if you took that conversation in the public, people would start accusing people of, well, because you're a socialist, you, this is your motivation because you're a capitalist. This is your motivation. Instead of going, well, actually we're talking about the same problem here. Um, yeah. we're not, we're not, there's a debate over how best to solve it. So I, I agree that, um, you know, one of the things I've thought of is we go to Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and we look at the likes or the followers and we attribute that to actually, thoughtfulness in reality like especially on twitter it's not thoughtfulness that gets you uh views or, 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 or <laughs> right, followers. Right. It, it's the ability to communicate in a way that invokes emotion which doesn't always 
denote you're a smart person. <laughs> so it's kind of, right, right, it's, right. we kind of go there, go, oh, this person's got 70,000 followers. They must be a genius. They might be, or they might be very good at just communicating on the platform. So th- those are different things. So um, I will give you the final word. We'll link to the book. And where else would you like us to send people to? Uh, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, uh, I encourage people to look at the book. I also would say the book is out uh, as an audio book as well. So uh, if you uh, look on Audible, you can find the book uh, as an audio book. And I understand there are a lot of people these days who would rather listen to a book than read it. So that's, uh, you know, it's out there that way. Uh, and uh, I can point you to my website, uh, Santa Clara University. Uh, Santa Clara University School of Law. I have a website up there. It's easy to find me on that. Uh, and that has some more information about uh, about me. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We'll link to the book in the show notes, which is at warroommedia.com. Uh, Professor, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you for your time. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. And- Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.